This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. And joining us for the first time, but I don't think it'll be the last because I think this is going to be a conversation we have to continue to have. She is the founding director of the Colors Convention Project. She's also co-director, Center for Black Digital Research, professor of English, African-American studies and history at Penn State University, senior library fellow and affiliate faculty at the University of Delaware. I'm putting it all in there. Let me welcome the one and only Professor Gabrielle Foreman. Welcome. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Listen, uh, as we were having this conversation, and we've been having it off mic, on mic, on Saturday, on YouTube, everywhere we can have it, we always say, Laurie actually says, what Africans have done, Africans can do. And Africans have been doing the work to, to organize and to figure out what our plan should be since we got here. <laughs> and you're now you know, bringing all of this together. So talk a little bit about the founding of this Colors Convention Project. Well, the Color Conventions Project brings 70 years of black political organizing in the 19th century to digital life at colorconventions.org. And you can find all the records there of a really diverse set of tactics to go back to what Professor Carr was saying to get us to our objective, which is black freedom, black dignity, black power, and full and equal citizenship in this country and beyond, right? So as citizens of the world, as David Walker would say. So we, these used to be in books that cost like $3,000, and we only had 45 state conventions, and they only went up to the Civil War in these collections of books, and we only had 12 national conventions. But tens of thousands of black people were getting together in hundreds and hundreds of conventions in every state of the growing union and in Canada. And they were doing that to organize both in states and municipal and municipalities and nationally to make sure that we have freedom from slavery. But more than that, to speak to the issues of our own time, educational access and justice, labor rights, civil rights, voting rights over, over and over again, and freedom from state-sanctioned violence and white mob rule and white mob organization against black folks, particularly when they were organizing and gaining economic power and stability where they lived. We're, we're coming up on the anniversary of the Wilmington uh, insurrection. Yeah. And I think about we're coming up on an election that I think is going to be wrought with a lot of uh, chaos and violence. How did they deal with this 70 plus years ago? What was the strategy or the tactic? What were the tactics around dealing with mob rule, white mob rule? The convention movement was started when 2000 black folks were expelled from Ohio. And I wanna pause there, right? Like Ohio, which was the West. Not, we're not talking about violence against African-Americans in 1829 in the South. We're talking about endemic violence against black communities, particularly as we grow and thrive, right? That happened in the 1820s where the black laws that had been running dormant for many years were reactivated by folks who were feeling displaced. So white mobs came together, and this is how the NAACP also, right, was founded years and years later in Alton, Illinois, when the same thing happened, right, where white folks came for black folks who were doing 
well in the Midwest, which, again, in 1829 was the West. So these folks got literally run out of town, like Wilmington, North Carolina, right, 70 years later. And, um, and, and there, the response was for black leaders to get together in 1830 in Philadelphia for the first national black convention, which they called colored conventions. And they brought together leaders from multiple states in order to start talking about tactics of organizing to make sure that we had black institutions, black schools. But they were also always talking about emigration, right? What happens if, in fact, they foreclose the possibility of full citizenship for us? What happens if that happens over and over and over again against our best efforts of organizing? So there was always this kind of um, idea that we could both engage civil rights struggle here, but think about whether or not we needed to think about escape strategies as well. So the color conventions movement and Henry McNeil Turner particularly, um, who was at the end of the movement in the 1890s, but really comes to the fore after the Civil War, and, and he is a precursor, right, to Marcus Garvey. This is a long-standing conversation from the 1830s all the way to today. And, um, and, and I, I think we need to, to think, hold all of those things together, right, is how do we struggle here? How do we make responsible plans um, if that can also not happen? As, as we're going through, and you guys can go to coloredconventions.org, coloredconventions.org, as we're going through this, how, because what I feel like is the information's out there. If you don't, as Joe Madison says, put it where the ghost can get it, people aren't going to go get it. But there's a, to me, a, I don't want to call it laziness, but all of this information has been there. That people have just walked over it, ignored it, you know, not really understood that, hey, maybe black people were always organizing and they always had 10, 12, 20 point plans for for freedom and success. Like, how, how do we make people understand this is where you can go to get this information that you don't have to start from scratch? Who wants to reinvent the wheel? Karen, I think this is so important, right, because the question about how our history gets disremembered, right, to pull Toni Morrison in the room, is really fundamentally important, right? So the question is, who is the we, right, you know, and who is being lazy and who's being intentional, right? So archives and repositories and museums have been so good at, at literally erasing the history that you bring to the fore. You say, if we exist as black people, we are creating we are creating political organizing. We are creating art. We are creating ways to, to remember ourselves and our heroes and our people and our organizers. We do that because we are human and fully human people do that all the time. We shouldn't have to convince nobody about that, right? So there is that. But at the same time, we're dealing with structural inequities, which are erasing our histories over and over again. Why is it that we know about the anti-slavery movement, particularly Garrison's anti-slavery movement that happens, right, that begins in 1833, when the color conventions movement starts three years beforehand, right? So why is it that we know about the Liberator, the abolitionist newspaper that gets taught in school, but we don't know about Freedom's Journal, which, again, predates the Liberator? So there's all of this black organizing, this black genius, this black these black networks, this is the other thing that just bothers me, right? We, we talk about Frederick Douglass, 
like he was influenced by his white mentors, his white father figures, right? And even the most recent biographies, the reviews, just repeat this um, absurdity over and over and over again. He goes to black conventions from 1843 to 1883, where he gives an amazing speech, where he says, why hold a colored convention? And then he tells us it's because white supremacy continues to have its foot on our neck. And he says, when we don't have that, we won't need to meet together in this way, but we do now. It's just, I mean, obviously, Frederick Douglass says it better than I can. And if I were my father, who was a black arts poet, real child, I would have memorized that speech by now, right? But nonetheless, you can go to, our, to colorconventions.org, and there's a video of a fabulous actor who is, who is doing that speech, as important as what to the slave is the 4th of July, right? Asking this question about why must we organize, right? If Frederick Douglass is meeting with black people for 40 years and multi-day conventions that are happening again, over and over again, with the lions of the movement, I'm talking about the most important entrepreneurs, I'm talking about the most important reverends, I'm talking about the most important newspaper editors, I'm talking about the most important reverends, I'm talking about literally the lions of their era. And they are getting together over and over again over years and they are learning, cutting their teeth at these conventions, and then becoming congressmen and becoming leaders. They are in their teens and 20s when they begin. John Mercer Langston, who is the great uncle of Langston News, and Langston News's grandfather, Charles Langston, go to 25 conventions before the Civil War. Then John Mercer Langston becomes the first dean of Howard's Law School. Then he becomes a congressperson, a congressman in the U.S. Congress, right? from Virginia, and he is going to meetings from his teens in Ohio through his 80s. We're talking about people who are in conversation together. I'm so sick of hearing about black people isolated from each other. It is not the truth. We are collectives. We work in collectives. We think in in collectives, and we start to influence each other and our thinking and refine our thinking in those collectives. So when people jump out, I'm sorry, Drew, and represent all of us on their own volition because they came up with an idea that was unique, but not at all. They do a disservice (laughs) to the ancestors. They do a disservice to us collectively when everyone's not at the table to have the conversation. If you handpick people that you're comfortable with, because that's the other thing that made the civil rights movement, I think, unique in that there was a Bayard Rustin and an Ella Baker at the forefront who didn't need to get credit, but their, their ideology and their, their genius was absolutely in the mix of everything that was put forward, and it had to be. And we don't bang up against one another enough, like, if we're not comfortable. We don't all have to agree, but all of these ways have to be considered, and, and we don't do enough of that today. And I think that's one of the really, really beautiful things about the convention movement is that you see disagreements about tactics because we are a heterogeneous people who have different thoughts and different experience and different ideas. We come from the Caribbean. We come from Africa. We come, you know, from country born, which is what they used to call folks who were born in the United States, right? So we have all of these folks and much more mobility as black people in the 19th century, too, right? The head of Freedom's Journal, John Russell, goes to Liberia, 
Martin Delaney is moving all over. Oh, my favorite story is Mifflin Gibbs, who uh, begins in Philadelphia, then goes to California because all these black folks are going out for the gold rush. He gets rich and establishes this amazing store, starts one of the first black papers after the 1855 California Black Convention. They have one of 55, 56, 57. Then they get run out of town because a white mob and comes and runs them out. What does Caritha Mitchell say? She says, success beckons the mob, right? It's not when we are not doing well that they come for us. It's when we are doing well that they come for us, right? White supremacy hates black excellence. White supremacy don't care nothing about black mediocrity, right? It hates black excellence. And so it came for us there. He goes up to, to Canada on the West Coast then comes back down, goes to a convention. Someone tells him he should go to Arkansas. He comes, becomes the first black elected judge in the entire country, settles down in Arkansas. His brother starts, and, and his child goes and becomes a state congressman in Florida. Again, they start in Philadelphia, and he's one of the people who begins FAMU. There is a Gibbs Hall, right? Right now it's at FAMU because of the activism and the strategies they learn in conventions that then spread out to the other kind of work that people are doing for generations. It's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Foreman, when you, when I hear you talk and tell these stories, it makes me feel like how we, um, I always, I always say that when people know how powerful they are, they move through the world differently. When you've seen the things that you understand what we've accomplished, you move through the world differently the disconnect between our history and what we think our possibilities and capabilities are, that Delta has grown so much by us being educated in schools that we don't run, right? That's my personal opinion, but <laughs> I think there's a modicum of truth that's, it, that's self-evident. Um, can you talk about who got to come to the convention? Because we have all of this, this conversation going on right now of who are black leaders? What, is a, what does it mean to be one, right? Like, who comes to the convention? Who's at the table? I love that question. Um, and remind me to talk about why black women's leadership and infrastructure is so important, too, whose names get recorded and whose don't. There is this, um, well, first of all, let me say that uh, we know all the leaders, and I called some of their names right beforehand, and they're all at the convention with each other. But that's a couple of hundred people, right? And there are tens of thousands of people who go to the convention. So I'm going to tell a leadership story, then I'm going to tell what actually makes the convention run story, right? So we had a North American teaching partner. We have a curriculum. People adopt the curriculum. And uh, we had a North American teaching partner. She had her students doing some research. And in the 1847 convention where they really talk about the black press, and the importance of not only having black press, but people who are in jobs in the black press, right? So black printers, black people who are pulling the, the, the uh, whatever it is called to get the, the 19th century paper actually printed, right? And uh, black workers, black distributors, right? And, distribu and distribution agents, they're talking about that. She's looking through that, and she finds a dude named Othello Burghardt, right? Othello Burghardt ain't nobody. Right, but his grandchild from Great Barrington, he was the delegate from Great Barrington, Massachusetts, 
Karen Hunter is smiling over there. She knows where we're going here. What's his What's his grandson's name? Uh, would that be W E B Du Bois or Du Bois? Would it be? There's Du Bois's grandfather. Du Bois's grandfather isn't anybody, right? But then he passes on, right, that kind of organizing tactic, that interest, right, that organizing structure, right? And there we see a Du Bois starting, right, the Niagara Movement and then the NAACP. I want to get to your question more directly, though. There are tens of thousands of people there at these conventions. And there is a difference between the state and the national convention. So in the state convention, you're getting delegates who are chosen from uh, reading rooms, from churches. Loads of these churches were, uh, loads of these conventions were held at AME churches across the country. The first one takes place in Bishop Richard Allen's final year on this earth, right? Mm. At, right? And, and then there's one. It, 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 with, with right as, as Mother Emanuel was getting reorganized right after it had to go underground after Denmark Vesey, right? So we have all kinds of folks who are coming from black institutions, which are the backbone of our, uh, of our survival, our thriving, our health, right? Um, and, and they're coming to these conventions. Once the Civil War happens, and I, it's important to note that these books, which used to hold the conventions, and this is why, Karen, when you said, um, well, we can always go to these books, this book costs $3,000, right? We get we, $3,000, right, from $450 to $3,000. This one only has 45 conventions. Now on colorconventions.org, and this is just in the last six to seven years, you can find 200, 250 of these conventions for free and digital exhibits. As I mentioned, this is the beginning. So can you come back next week and let's talk about the women? Can you come back the week after that and let's let's tell some more stories because we have to unearth this history ourselves because no one's going to do it for us. And I appreciate you and the scholarship and all of the work that you put in. Dr. Gabrielle Foreman, love you. Thank you. Coloredconventions.org. I'm giving it out, but she'll be back. <laughs> 